Welcome to Prep Talk, the emergency management podcast. Find out what you need to know about preparedness, get all the latest tips from experts in the field, and learn what to do before the next disaster strikes. From the emergency management department in the city that never sleeps, here are your hosts, Omar Bourne and Allison Panisi. Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening. I am Justin Bennett. Omar Bourne is out on assignment. And I'm Allison Panisi. And you are our listeners. And as always, we thank you for joining us. We want you to come back as often as you can. So feel free to listen to Prep Talk on your favorite podcast provider. You can also follow us on social media, on our Twitter at NYC Emergency MGT, Facebook, Instagram, and much more. On this episode, we are on scene at the New York City Emergency Management's 2020 Symposium, Bridging the Gap to Communities discussing the importance of establishing community emergency networks prior to an emergency. Emergencies affect every community differently, but through planning, you can help your community be prepared and resilient. That's right, Justin. Communities with strong social ties are usually better prepared and often recover faster after an emergency. Today, our special guest will talk about the value of building resilient communities and detail the steps you can take to connect with neighbors, community organizations, and government resources post-disaster. But before we get to all that, you know what time it is. It's time for the Situation Report. Here's your Prep Talk Situation Report. All right, this is the Situation Report. Let's get started. Thank you, Allison. Two dozen Australians in the state of New South Wales have been arrested since November 2019 for intentionally setting fires as record large wildfires continue to burn across the country. New South Wales officials say starting a bushfire intentionally and being reckless in causing its spread can result in up to 21 years in prison. Since the start of the Australian fire season, at least 24 people have been killed and over 2,000 homes have been destroyed by the bushfires. New South Wales has been particularly hard hit by fires this season. The state includes the capital of Sydney, Australia's largest city, and is the country's most populous state. Thanks, Justin. A 6.4 magnitude earthquake recently rumbled across Puerto Rico, killing at least one person and knocking out power to virtually the entire island of more than 3 million people. The most recent quake was the largest in a series of earthquakes that have struck the U.S. territory in recent days and caused heavy damage in some areas. The flurry of quakes in Puerto Rico's southern region began December 28 with a 4.7 magnitude quake. And over the past several weeks, hundreds of small earthquakes have occurred in the same region. Now, Puerto Rican officials ordered non-essential government employees to stay home and urge residents to follow the island's emergency management social media sites for updated information. Winter weather is in full swing. Are you ready for the next winter storm? The best way to keep your family safe is to prepare now. During a winter storm, the best action is to stay indoors. So be sure you have an emergency kit at home. Your emergency supply kit should include essential items, such as a flashlight and extra batteries, and a battery-powered radio in case of a power outage. Your emergency kit should also incorporate non-perishable food, water, extra medication, warm clothing, and first aid supplies. Thanks, Justin. 
The Department of Homeland Security recently released a bulletin through its National Terrorism Advisory System, warning of Iran's ability to carry out cyber attacks against critical U.S. infrastructure. In the bulletin, DHS noted that while there is currently, quote, no information indicating a specific credible threat to the homeland, unquote, Iran does have the ability to attack the U.S. in cyberspace. The bulletin recommends that Americans implement basic measures to defend against cyber attacks, such as backing up data and using two-factor authentication on sensitive accounts. And that is the Situation Report. Still to come, we will be speaking with Dr. Daniel Aldrich, Director of Security and Resilience at Northeastern University. But first, here is a public service announcement from New York City Emergency Management and the Ed Council. Your daughter doesn't want to talk about why her room is a horrible mess. Your son doesn't want to talk about why he's wearing mismatching socks. Your spouse doesn't want to talk about their bad haircut. Families don't have to talk about everything, but they should talk to plan for an emergency. Pack basic supplies in a go bag, water, canned food, flashlights, batteries, medical supplies, IDs, and some cash. Talk about where you'll meet in case you lose one another. And of course, don't forget to pack the dog treats. Talk to your family and make an emergency plan. Go to nyc.gov slash readyny or call 311 to make your family's emergency plan. Brought to you by New York City Emergency Management and the Ad Council. You're listening to Prep Talk, the emergency management podcast. You are listening to Prep Talk and we are back. Joining us for this episode is Dr. Daniel Aldrich. Director of Security and Resilience at Northeastern University. Dr. Aldrich, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So, Dr. Aldrich, each year, New York City Emergency Management will host this symposium to help connect individuals with disabilities, access, and functional needs to their communities. Uh, While it is a tool for connecting New Yorkers to community organizations and government resources, It also highlights the importance of community planning in general. So how do you think events like this can help communities prepare? I think most of us envision disasters and preparation in terms of individual work. So it's my job to get my kit ready or my batteries or a cell phone that can handle several days without charging. But I think part of the message from today's symposium is that what really drives us and helps us get through a shock are our neighbors, our friends, and our community. And several things come from today. One is that we meet new people. People we haven't met before gives us a broader network, individuals who may be working in other organizations or in CERT or OEM or whoever else. It's really powerful. But also to take home to our families, our communities, organizations, the messages we're hearing today, most of which are about the power of community. You've done a lot of research on the impact of disasters on communities really around the world. What initially sparked your interest in this work? So actually going through a shock uh, with my family back in 2005 really drove what I do. We had moved down to New Orleans in July 2005 and had six pretty good weeks there in our new home with our new car. It's my first job, so we bought everything we could, filled the house with furniture, our kids were going to go to school. And of course, as you know, in August of 2005, Hurricane Katrina arrived in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. So we and a million other people evacuated at the very last minute. Our home, our car, everything that we owned was destroyed. And my university was Tulane. They shut down for the semester. So we had no place to stay. I had no job. My kid's school was shut down. And we were pretty much stateless and shocked in Houston, Texas for about a week or so. And I began thinking as an academic, not just as a survivor, but as an academic, 
is my experience now going to be unique? Will I have something that happens to me that hasn't happened elsewhere? And we noticed immediately that it wasn't that the government or insurance stepped in. I had this vision that somehow FEMA would come in on a white horse or a big check would come in from an insurance company. We actually had no coverage from an insurance company's for our car or for our house products. And FEMA said no to our requests for about six months. So what really helped us out were friends, friends of friends, community-based organizations, people that we'd never really met before who heard about our assistant, need for assistance and helped us. So I began wondering if we're getting by, not because of the government or the market, is it the case around the world? And proposed a project that became a book called Building Resilience. It took me to India, Japan, and the Gulf Coast to understand what helps people get through a shock. So Dr. Aldrich, you were our keynote at the 2020 Community Preparedness Symposium. And what you discussed was how social ties uh, within neighborhoods increase resilience in the face of disaster and how New Yorkers can build communities that are more prepared. Tell us a little more about that. Yeah. So I tried to talk about the different phases during a shock, things like evacuation, survival, and recovery. And oftentimes when we talk about that in the newspapers or in local uh, journalists, they talk, the thing is about, you know, were there enough people on the ground to help out? Was there enough money? But actually what we found in our research was those three things, evacuating, surviving, and then thriving afterwards are based on the exact same factor, which is the degree to which your community and you are connected. So even during the evacuation stage, we've done research and we've shown evacuation is not a function just of how old you are or young you are. It's really a function of how broad your network is. Individuals who have more connections, individuals with a broader network, those are individuals who have left areas like Miami or Houston before hurricanes have arrived. We've shown in multiple papers we've written now that getting out means you've got to hear more than one time in more than one way that it's time to leave. Maybe if only my friend tells me I won't listen, but if the NOAA, if the local weatherman says something, if my grandparents say something, if a friend of a friend says something, that combination of messages is much more effective than just people that I know. And by the way, even people that I know might tell me, stay, right? Shelter in place, it's going to be okay, which can be very dangerous for some people. So that first stage of evacuation we found is very much driven by how broad the network is. So broader networks mean you're more likely to evacuate. Then in the survival stage, when you have a really big shock, and I'm thinking right now about the 2011 tsunami in Japan, this 60-foot wave that came ashore, some, some people envisioned that it was a question of geography or geology or the age of the people living in the communities. We've tried to show, in fact, if you survived, it was more likely when you had a community that was connected because they came and knocked on their door before the wave hit and said, there's something coming, get out with me. For the elderly, for the infirm, people with disabilities and actual functional needs, they really needed help to get out. Because there's about 40 minutes between the earthquake and the arrival of that wave. For people who had connections, much, much easier to get on someone's back or in a bicycle or a van and go up to a higher ground. Individuals who weren't connected, who didn't have that kind of neighborliness, much more challenging for them to survive this kind of event. So evacuation, survival, and then thriving in the long term. Which cities rebuild? Uh, which countries, uh, areas are the ones that have more bridges, roads, businesses, and schools put back together quickly, we find vertical ties really matter there. Or horizontal ties matter during the survival and the uh, evacuation stages, having connections to decision makers, whether in the central government or local government, made a big difference. Those communities that were more connected got more money coming in, more construction firms involved. So those ties aren't some abstract that we're talking about here right now during peacetime, sort of the blue skies phenomenon. When we have them during peacetime as well, during a normal day, they're really powerful events to help us get through shocks and crisis. That's excellent. So you often mention um, in your work terms like social capital and community resiliency. Can you explain those concepts to our listeners further? Sure. Social capital is a fancy way of saying the connections that we have to people. And there are both horizontal ties, people with the same level of power and responsibility, and vertical ties, ties to people who have power. 
So I think about this in terms of bonding, bridging, and linking. Bonding ties connect people who are quite similar. So if you come from a certain school or an area or an ethnic group or a different country, maybe many of your friends look and sound like you. Bridging ties go beyond that ethnicity or religion or race. And this might come through a church, a synagogue, a mosque, maybe through a 4-H club or a workplace. And those are ties that go beyond where we're born into. Finally, vertical ties are what we call linking ties. These are between normal people like me and someone with power. So maybe the mayor or the governor, someone on the FEMA board or someone in the Red Cross. And what we've argued in our research as a lab for many years now has been that these kinds of connections, horizontal and vertical, are critical at different stages. So bonding ties, the horizontal ties are really important during the shock. And then vertical ties become important afterwards in the recovery phase. And then long-term equilibrium bonding become important again. So it's not that we all have one type of connection or the other. It's that we have a mix of kinds of ties and those play a different role at different moments. What can community networks or leaders do to help shape a network of resiliency? Yeah, the great news for us around the world is our stores of social capital aren't set. In the same way that if we save money or we change jobs or we're really efficient, we can have financial capital that builds up. Social ties can also be built. And part of our work has really been to understand if these social ties drive survival and recovery, how do we then enhance them, whether in a small level like a community or a neighborhood on the big level, a city or at the national level? And there are all kinds of things that we can do. So if you've ever watched Mr. Rogers, when I was a kid, he told me every day to be a good neighbor. And that mm -hmm. advice applies today as well in 2020. Thinking through, you know, most people in New York or Boston or Mumbai or Tokyo, unfortunately, don't know their neighbors. And that's really too bad, because if there's a shock, like a fire or a flood or a heart attack, those neighbors will be at your door long before the first, first responders get there. So having that first level of ties is really important. Knowing the community itself, do you have friends who live further away, maybe a block or two away? And we have programs that we try to enforce, uh, like the Community Neighbor Day in Australia. We have Neighbor Fest in San Francisco. These are programs that actively try to make connections between people. Uh, we also help cities promote different types of parks, dog parks, walking parks, uh, athletic events outside, things that get you outside of your home, outside your comfort zone, meeting new people. We've also tried to encourage cities to think about things like civic engagement. How do you make people go to meetings, like a zoning board meeting or a school board or a PTA? That's really where democracy happens. If more of us go to those kind of meetings, we build trust in each other and the system. And finally, we've talked about ideas like community currency or time banking. So that's when you think about, how do I get paid back for the work that I do for my community? How do I get an incentive to go back? So in Ithaca, New York, in Toronto, Canada, uh, in Boston, in Mumbai, a lot of places right now, if you volunteer for an hour, they'll give you some kind of currency. Now that currency can't be taken to Walmart or Burger King or McDonald's. It only works at local stores, mom and pop stores, farmers markets, barber shops. What you do is if you volunteer for the hour, you get that currency back. Then you go to a local store and spend it. That store now has that currency. Where can they go? To other local stores. So your volunteer hours, so to speak, circulate locally. We call it a positive cycle. So these are all different ways we try to envision it's possible to actively build these social ties. How do we encourage each other to do more in the community, to more volunteer work, more civic engagement? Now, these are all excellent points about social and community resiliency, 
I think it's also important for our listeners to know that New York City Emergency Management uses a host of tools to help communities prepare for, respond to, and recover from emergencies. So that ranges from the individual level, making an emergency plan, but then it also expands. We have training classes. We have the Community Emergency Response Team, or CERT, program, um, where volunteers help their communities uh, before an emergency and even during and after a disaster as well. We also have a lot of preparedness resources for those with disabilities, access and functional needs, uh, non-English speaking New Yorkers, even for uh, the youth of New York City. We also work with establishing uh, community networks uh, to our city's emergency operations center during a disaster as well. So with all of those things, during your research, have you found any programs or initiatives that are effective in helping communities build stronger relationships prior to a disaster? Yeah, we like to envision that each community has their own interests, culture, and needs, but we think there are types of programs that work really well. So programs that begin by asking citizens, what do they want from the community? This has been really effective, for example, in San Francisco and in Boulder, Colorado, where people sat down from the city's office, from NGOs, churches, mosques, synagogues, and the community and said, what kind of community do we want to build? Not even talking about disasters per se, just about what kind of vision do we have? Is it a safe community, a walkable community? Is it one people say hello to each other? And then they thought through, okay, well, if we don't have that right now, how do we all get there? How does the community work? How do the NGOs, churches and mosques, synagogues, and the city work together? So I think those kind of bottom-up programs that often are based around whether it's an event, like a symposium like today, or more regular events, for example, it might be a May Day. Uh, it could be an outdoor sports festival for children. In Japan, it might be a matsuri or festival. Uh, in some place like India, it might be a local wedding, actually, that brings people together who haven't gotten together. The whole community might show up. So we think that each community needs to build for itself a program that will attract local members. For example, if you know for a fact that square dancing and clogging are not going to interest your community, don't run that kind of program. <laughs> uh, you know, if, on the other hand, you're really into, who knows, pole vaulting or outdoor activities or dog walking, you know, those should be the in incentives that you have to bet people out. But what we really want to do is have people realize you know, oftentimes we think it's someone else's job to take care of us or to get our needs met, or even during a shock, like a disaster or a crisis, mm -hmm. they'll come into us. And part of the building the community idea is it's really have to be a bottom-up process. The members themselves take responsibility for where they live, feel a sense of connection to each other and the place where they are, and want to do more for it. And that, we think, really builds long-term connections, whether they're renters or homeowners, whether they're there for a year or for or longer, but also helps people think through, how do I then ask my city for things that I need? Maybe we don't have yet, for example, a park that's fully accessible to people with functional needs. Maybe we don't have a dog park nearby. Or maybe there's not the sidewalks. I used to live in Indianapolis, for example, were pretty bad. So those kind of needs need to come from the bottom up. So what's the first step? You know, we, we see a lot of community members who want to help their communities. What advice do you have to someone on starting a community network? Yeah, I think the first thing is to build a vision of what the community wants. So if we have one really active person who's out there knocking on doors, who knows everyone's first and last name, who spends the time picking up garbage or whatever else. We want that person then to build that sense of connection across the area, not just one leader, but a network of leaders and activists in the community. Once they have that, then it's much easier to go to the government or to an NGO or the park authorities and say, here's our vision for a stronger, more improved, more resilient community, and then ask for those kind of needs. Where the challenges come, oftentimes it's the same five people at every meeting. Every PTA meeting, every zoning board meeting, every school meeting, oftentimes the same five people. Now, we want those people to be involved, mm -hmm. but we also want people who maybe don't have English as a first language. We want people with multiple jobs or older or younger, people who have 
things they're doing outside the community to be involved as well. And I think that's the real challenge. Uh, how do we get them to feel they're part of the community? I think, honestly, this is also part of the job of the city here. Uh, what can the city do to make people feel comfortable in reaching out? Are there always translators available for multiple languages at an event, uh, whether it's going to be sign language or Creole or French? Uh, is, it, is there going to be the availability of parking and childcare, something else going on for people who have kids to bring with them? There are all kinds of things to make those moments of meeting easier and more likely. If I've got children at home and I know there's no childcare, I'm not going to come to a five o'clock meeting. If I hear there's food, childcare, and some kind of event going on, then it's much more likely I'll show up, even if I have a busy day. So we want to think through what are the factors at the meeting itself and from the community to get them thinking, this is a joint problem that we want to solve. We really want everyone to show up who could. It's all about working together and that coordination. And it starts with the individuals in the community. And we often say this too, is that People who live in these communities, they they know what their community needs better than anyone else. The government Absolutely. the government will know, but it's it's a, a matter of establishing that network. There needs to be a network among the community first and then establishing it with, as you said before, the NGOs, the the government, local, state, federal level. Um, so we appreciate that. And for our listeners, um, if you're interested in learning uh, about New York City's uh, involvement in community preparedness, you could visit our website, nyc.gov forward slash emergency management, or you could check out our community emergency planning toolkit, which you could access by visiting nyc.gov forward slash community preparedness. Dr. Aldrich, thank you so much for joining the show. Um, do you have any last words for our listeners? Yeah, just to emphasize this theme again, I think oftentimes when we think for the government work or our own jobs, this idea of the government taking over or the individuals getting kits ready, we miss the chance to think about disasters and crisis or even community building as a community process. Mm -hmm. So of course, we want you to have your batteries and your food and your tuna cans. That's really important. And also we want a government that's active and responsive, also really important. But what we found around the world, and this has been true in North America, in Japan, in India, is that communities that are better connected are the ones who have better survival rates better recovery rates, and better mental health rates in the long term. So this shouldn't be about getting ready for the once in a 500-year flood or getting my kit ready. It should be, do I know my neighbors? Do I feel comfortable where I live? Do I want to live here longer? What can I do to make other people find this place home? Once we build that sense of connection then and have that spread out, then we're building a broader community engagement network that will be successful whether there's a disaster or not. So we don't want to frame this as getting ready for a shock, but rather building a community where you want to live every day, right? A community that's walkable or engaged and trusting. Mm -hmm. I can take a walk at night with my family, uh, where I know my neighbors if there's a challenge. So I think part of this thing is shifting our mindset, right? Rather than envisioning it's me and my kit or the government and their work, it's what are we doing in my community where I live? to build those ties. And it even goes back to the individual emergency plan of making that emergency support network. You can rely on your neighbors, your neighbors can rely on you in turn, which I think is really important. And that's how we build our communities. So thank you very much for your insights. All right, for our listeners, it's rapid response time. And if you are a first time listener, it's simple. Justin and I will ask questions and our guest will give the first answer that comes to mind. It's time for Prep Talk Rapid Response. All right, it's rapid response time. Dr. Aldrich, what is one emergency item you cannot live without? My wife. That's the second time we've had that on the that show. That is, that is. But I still think it's a great one. So you get you get brownie points for that. Um, off air, we were talking about um, different places that we've all lived. And you said you've moved about 17 times. That's correct. Okay. What was your favorite place to live? Or where was your favorite place to live? I'd have to say that Hawaii was pretty amazing. We had a rental on Waikiki, and my office was the University of Hawaii, just up the hill. So I'd walk up for about a mile into my office in the clouds. My kids would be playing on the beach. 
I'd walk down again at the end of the day. We'd go swimming. It's pretty idyllic. Wow. That sounds great. Do you remember all 17 locations? I had to recall them once for some kind of security check. So I actually had to write them down. I was pretty good. I think I got 16 the first time. Not bad. What's your favorite movie or TV show? My addiction now is The Expanse, which is this Mm. sci-fi channel adapted from a series of books about future space travel. Uh, It's fantastic galactic opera. It's really good stuff. Makes Star Wars and Star Trek look very small scale. Okay. It's a bold statement. Yeah. Um, Sum up the work you do in one word. Connections. I love it. Well, thank you so much again for joining us for this special edition of Prep Talk. And for our listeners, if you want to learn more about community preparedness, you could visit nyc.gov forward slash emergency management for more information. That's this episode of Prep Talk. If you like what you heard, you can listen anytime online or through your favorite RSS feed. Until next time, stay safe and prepared.